Let us pray. Father, thank you for your great grace. Thank you for your incredible love for us and for people all around the world who desperately need to hear the gospel. Lord, as we come to your word and we hear from the gospel, I pray that you would mold us and shape us and conform us to the image of Jesus. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here on this beautiful day and a beautiful day yesterday as well. Just enjoying this um, unseasonably pleasant weather for mid-November or what we're moving into mid-November here. And i um, so glad all of you are here. And the picnic afterwards today, just an FYI, if you haven't signed up, we have extra food and we, we can accommodate anyone who's here who didn't sign up who would like to be a part of that. So please um, stay outside with social distancing and enjoy the weather even if you didn't sign up. I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices and turn to Matthew 25. Uh, my sermon will be a little shorter than usual today because we have a number of things in the service and then also I'm going to end in a timely way for the picnic. Um, Saying my sermon is a little shorter probably leads some of you internally to have great rejoicing. Um, But we're looking at Matthew 25. Um, This parable is set in Matthew's gospel very close to the events of Jesus' passion. And this parable falls into, in theological terms, what is known as eschatology. Now, eschatology is just a fancy word, a theological term for Christian doctrine concerning last things. That's what eschatology means, the study of last things. And eschatology is generally divided into two categories in theology. First, you have what we call individual eschatology, which relates to the ultimate destiny of individual human beings, meaning heaven, hell, what happens at the last judgment to individuals, that sort of thing. Then we also have what would be known as general eschatology, which is more typically what you hear people discussing when they're talking about eschatology. And general eschatology focuses on the big picture, the ultimate destiny of the human race in general, the church of Jesus Christ, focus on Christ's return and the ultimate establishment of his kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth and those sorts of things. It's not my intention today to delve into the various schools of theological thinking regarding eschatology. Um, It's quite a quagmire in the culture we live in, especially. Um, And frankly, eschatology is very important, but I believe, frankly, that far too much time is spent or consumed on the popular level trying to figure out this or that regarding eschatology. It can be controversial, but one thing is clear in Scripture, and it is that no human being has ever figured out everything in this realm of things. God alone knows the timing. All that being said, there are important lessons with application for us in this parable regarding our Lord's return, and I want to focus on three of them briefly this morning. The first lesson is this, lesson number one. The bridegroom in the parable, which who is the Lord Jesus, is Lord of time and history. Not just human history, but all history, all of eternity. This fact is resoundingly clear in this parable. God alone knows and has set the timing 
of Christ's return. Scripture affirms that time and time again. Listen to Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. And then continuing in verse 44 of Matthew 24, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now to be clear, Christ's return is real, actual, and literal, not simply figurative. Some people in more liberal theological circles talk about the return of Christ not in a physical return of Christ to his people, to earth, but in a figurative sense, oh, it's the spirit of Christ. But these are the same people that would say that Jesus wasn't physically resurrected from the grave, that he only arose spiritually and lives on in the stories told by his disciples and other nonsense like that. I have no opinion on, strongly on that. These events regarding Christ's return in the estimation of some may seem delayed. Frankly, that was the general expectation of first century Christians. That it was their, their idea was that Christ would return in their lifetimes. And in fairness to those early Christians, think of their frame of reference of what was happening around them. And it was not an unreasonable way of thinking for them. Think of the words of the angel to those first disciples in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, where we read, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And from their perspective and limited frame of reference in that moment, they, they probably very reasonably thought, wow, this is going to happen before we die. But again, we need to remember the bridegroom Jesus is Lord of time and history. And no one knows the time except God. And that brings us to our second and third points this morning. Lesson two, the wise hold to God's promises with steadfast obedience. Read that again. The wise hold to God's promises with steadfast obedience. And the idea here in this parable of wise and foolish is not about intelligence or intellectual, intellectual capabilities. Rather, it is about making prudent, God-led decisions. Wisdom is reflected by making, making prudent, God-led decisions. Wisdom is demonstrated by making godly choices, uh, by godly ways of being, thinking, and doing. W.D. Davies and Dale Allison in their commentary on Matthew say this, true readiness for the Lord does not mean holding fast to the expectation that he must come shortly, but it means prudently taking into consideration the possibility that he delays. In today's parable, the prospect of a delay is what brings into focus the distinction between who is wise and who is foolish. And this is very much in line and akin to things Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew chapter 7, where in the parable of the wise and foolish builders, Jesus talks about those who build their house upon the rock and those who build their house upon the sand. The imagery here of a wedding would have been very understandable to people in Palestine in that day. Because in traditional Palestinian village weddings, even in recent centuries, the custom is that women 
who are torchbearers, would go out with lights and with torches in that day, usually on a stick with a cloth soaked in olive oil. The women led by the bridesmaids would go out and they would go to the bride's home. And there with the bridal party, they would await the groom and his party. And then once the groom arrived, the bridesmaids would then escort the bride and the wedding party through the village to the groom's house with everybody hanging out their windows and cheering as they went along their way. But sometimes the groom didn't show up quite at the timing that the bridesmaids anticipated. The groom was delayed. I love the story of Tammy, my wife, when she was a missionary in Ecuador. And early on there, before she learned the customs of the folks in Ecuador, she, there was a wedding scheduled and Tammy showed up like you normally would 20 minutes ahead of the start time of the wedding. And Tammy was the only one there. Nobody was there, not even the bride, not even the wedding party. And, you know, guests started to roll in an hour, an hour and a half later. And then, and I know for those of you from other parts of the world, this is not an uncommon custom at all. But for a girl from California, this was was a shock. About three hours after the wedding was supposed to start, the bride showed up. And then after that, the wedding party got started another 45 minutes or an hour later. So, so Tammy learned very quickly that Ecuadorian time is not the same as American time. Now, another story that is not in my notes. Um, Tammy was a children's pastor and also um, did a lot of work with street children in Quito, Ecuador. But her ministry team always showed up late for things. And so what Tammy figured out, they loved American food. So Tammy would always prepare a big meal for her team. And she would say, we're eating from six to seven. And at seven o'clock, I'm putting the food away and the meeting starts. Tammy was using the food to get them there on time for the meeting. She didn't care that they all showed up at 6.55 to get their food, but they got there on time because they wanted the American food that she put away promptly at seven o'clock to start the meeting. But the wise virgins in this parable had enough oil in their lamps or torches to sustain them however long the delay might be, even unexpected, unanticipated delays. What does this say to you and me? Not just about the Lord's return, but about living the Christian life. What does it say to us? The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is about steadfast obedience. It is about pressing in with the Lord. It is about an ever-increasing and right ordering of my life priorities and yours. It's about yielding to the ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What Pastor Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. God is calling you and me to be about our Father's business, our Heavenly Father's business to be about the priorities and the work of his eternal kingdom. And if that is our focus, then there is no need to worry about the nearness of our Lord's coming or any perceived delay. Whenever the day of the Lord is, we will be found ready. We need to ask ourselves if we are yielding to what God wills to make of us and of his church. 
Again, quoting Erasmo Maracacus, who I've quoted a number of times in these past few weeks with Matthew. I love what he says about this. Pure oil that gives the brightest flame flows only from the death of many crushed olives. And such too is the case of the lamp of my person. At the end of our lives, when God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, we have to be able to offer up more than mere intentions and vague de- or vague desire. We have to be able to offer up to God the richly combustible substance of a loving human heart. Then it will be concerned by the bla- consumed by the blazing conflagration of divine love, which seeks only one thing. Are we dying to self and the things of this world? The death of many crushed olives so that the lamp of our person may be fueled and brightly burning all the days of our lives. Consumed by a blazing conflagration of divine love which seeks only one thing. Those exercising godly wisdom will hold steadfast to God's promise with tenacious obedience. Lesson three. The foolish in this parable were presumptuous and short-sighted. They presumed not only that the Lord was returning soon, but the implication of presuming that is that they knew the mind of God in terms of things which are relegated to God's knowledge and prerogative alone. No one knows the day or the hour. They didn't have their eyes fixed on the Lord and, if you will, what I would call the Lord's horizon. They were very short-sighted. You know, when you look at a horizon, if you're in the mountains, the horizon may be very close. If you're standing on the beach looking out over the ocean, the horizon may seem very far away. But the reality is, as human beings, we can't tell what that distance is. All we know is that it's the horizon. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord and on his horizon. Their lamps went out because there was no reserve. They acted according to their own presumptions and expectations rather than being spiritually prepared. They failed to obediently and faithfully await God's timing. And frankly, they were not fully yielded to God's timing. They wanted to set the timing on their own, on their limited human time frame. They were not prepared for a long obedience of discipleship in the same direction. They were not prepared, if you will, to run the race, which is a marathon, to the end and finish well. Bishop John, in the October 2nd edition of the Mid-Atlantic Messenger, our diocesan newspaper, or newsletter, nobody has newspapers anymore, um, our newsletter wrote this from the daily lectionary about King Asa, Described in Second Chronicles 14.2. And I'm just going to read a couple quotes because it has a lot to do with running the race and finishing well. Asa was a faithful, godly leader described as one who did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Yet late in life, Asa's pride caused him to stumble. The prophet Hanai rebuked Asa for relying on pagans instead of the Lord. Sadly, Asa reacted not in humble repentance, but in prideful anger. 
And then scripture tells us that Asa's pride brought about his own death. In his final years, his feet became severely diseased. Although he turned to physicians, he would not pray. He would not seek help from God. And so he died. Asa's story is a cautionary tale. His years of obedience proved to be no guarantee of future faithfulness. And then Bishop John adds, the Bible includes accounts like this to remind us that we should never delude ourselves into thinking that we've somehow moved beyond the basics of the Christian life. No, we must repent before God daily. We must surrender afresh to God daily. We must live in prayerful dependence upon God daily. Faithful obedience, godly wisdom, a godly perspective on God's timing of Christ establishing his eternal kingdom really is about a long obedience in the same direction. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Growing, trusting, going more deeply in our walk with the Lord. And when we do that, all of those other issues and concerns and matters, they will take care of themselves because we are to be about the work of the kingdom and about God's business and about ushering in his kingdom here on earth for the glory of his name. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you are the author of time and history and that we truly do await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised that in the time that you have established will return. Father, help us not to get caught up with trying to figure that out on our own, but to be about your business, to be about living out the reality of your kingdom here and now as faithful servants of our most high God, that we would serve you as a church and as individuals to touch our world with the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.